Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now, here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tate. Welcome back to Talk Dizzy to Me. I'm Dr. Danielle Tate, a vestibular physical therapist, joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Abby Ross, a vestibular physical therapist, neuroclinical specialist, and Dr. Kelly Keener, also a vestibular specialist. And we are also joined today uh, by Dr. Neil Shepard, a, neuro- a renowned audiologist um, who's very well published in the field of balance and dizziness, worked at the Mayo Clinic teaches vestibular courses worldwide while conducting research and still seeing patients and teaching this, uh, vestibular physical therapy to postgraduate students in a residency program. Welcome, Dr. Neil Shepard. Thank you. Yes, thank you for being here, Dr. Shepard. I have to say all three of us have been to your course at Emory before, and mm-hmm. I just so enjoy your speeches in that course. And I can't wait to ask you a million and one questions that I need to ask you there today. <laughs> so welcome. That's Thank fine. You. <laughs> Great. Thanks again for joining us. I'd like you to start by giving us a little bit of a background on your education and what led you to the vestibular world, because it's not it's not always the typical path for not only an audiologist, but also a, a physical therapist. Yeah. <clears throat> well, my background is basically in electrical and biomedical engineering. And then at the, what I ended up doing was at the, the uh, PhD level, um, decided to specialize in audiology, primarily because my wife has a deaf twin sister and she's a teacher of the deaf. So that's what got me into audiology. But in in my engineering, uh, what I specialized in was control systems. And as I started studying different aspects of audiology, uh, very quickly it became clear that uh, an interesting control system was the vestibular system. So that led me from there to start subspecializing in the area of vestibular, and from there it went on so that I spent the last 40 years working with uh, um, pathology as well as physiology of the vestibular system. And so that's really how I got here. It just kind of sucks you in, doesn't it? It's almost got this uh, addictive quality about it that we all just seem to fall in love with. Mm-hmm. It does. That is, I love how you put it, this control system and how you had that type of background that led you to this. I mean, it's really complex and a puzzle that you have to figure out for each and every patient you see and probably each and every student you teach too. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, we all are in tune with many of your publications and I read online somewhere that I think you have over 75 publications, which I'm still working on one. So props (laughs) to you for that. That's a lot of work and we thank you for that work. But I was wondering really out of all your research, was there any particular study that you found to be surprising or that really impacted the vestibular world in a way you didn't anticipate, let's say? Um, 
I don't know that there was anything that was real surprising. Um, and as far as you know, impacting the vestibular world, um, plus or minus, but there is one, there was one that, that stood out <clears throat> that impacted physical therapy more than the, uh, I think the others to some degree. And that was one that where we did, what we did was to have the physical therapist that was working with us, a gentleman by the name of Mike Smith-Wheelock, who has gone on uh, to be an ophthalmologist and is now retired from that profession. So um, have him come up with his best shot at giving uh, a list of generic exercises so instead of the labor-intensive work that is done in vestibular rehab, you could just hand the uh, sheet of exercises to a patient and help, them guide, help guide them through the use of those, and that would pretty well take care of it. In other words, we wanted him to come up with his best shot to put him out of work. <laughs> exactly. And... Um, yeah, I don't like where this is going, Dr. Shepard. <laughs> <laughs> what they find? Basically, what we found, and this was way back in the um, early uh, 1990s, um, that it worked. That one sheet of paper with the exercises he had worked. But in a study where we used a double-blind double control method where one group had the generic activities, the other group had customized, it was clear that the customized exercises had a much larger benefit, a greater benefit, and then with several years later going back and surveying them had a longer lasting effect than the generic exercises. And so that has been cited and that's what we've used over the years to defend the fact that, yeah, you need a one-on-one -on -one, um, development of exercises because in many physical therapists, they are one-on several in a group uh, for coming up with exercises. And so this helped justify the fact that not one-on-one -on -one works better for this, this particular patient group. What I like about that too, though, is that it shows that just getting moving, just doing something has some benefit and having a resource like that for patients in an area that may not have access to the type of care uh, or specialist is uh, something that's a great thing to have. It's good to have that resource to get people moving and getting better, even when there might be lacking Um for them to be able to get the care that they need. So, you know, it sounds like it was a benefit on either side, whether it was supporting physical therapy, which it did, um, but also supporting the fact that just getting moving and just staying active is a great way to kind of put your foot in the right direction. Right. And, that, and that's what we end up telling patients. You know, if they can't get in to see anybody, then we can guide them, you know, remotely. Uh, by just getting them to do some very basic things, nothing complicated, but getting up and getting moving, so. And so Dr. Shepard, I was wondering, do you have a favorite diagnosis in general um, that you prefer to treat, vestibular diagnosis? Ah, 
the, <coughs> I know it's hard. The, yeah. Well, I think all of us like the opportunity to tr- treat a, a, a basic posterior canal benefited <laughs> because <laughs> for the so patient, <laughs> for the patient, it, it's uh, it appears to be uh, smoke and mirrors. I mean, you when you can put them through a maneuver and actually take symptoms away, um, even though you're causing symptoms for them at the time. And so, but in terms of, uh, well, yeah, I enjoy that because of the way the clinic ran at Mayo, um, we rarely got to see a good basic posterior PPPV. It was always something a lot more complex. Um, the other the other one w- would be a disorder that many times uh, is misinterpreted as BPPV, and it's not. Doing maneuvers until you're blue in the face does have no, no effect on it. It's vestibular paroxemia, and that disorder creates symptoms that last only seconds, but the hallmark is those are spontaneous even though you can provoke those symptoms with movements like what you do with a hall pipe. And so it very often gets confused with it. But it, it's one, and it's treated with uh, medication alone. So maneuvers don't help that group at all. So, but it's, it's rare. I'm sure it gets misdiagnosed frequently now too, especially with vestibular migraine kind of also simulating um, similar symptoms, especially with changes in position and head movement and whatnot. Um, I'll be honest, I don't, I haven't had a patient come into our clinic with that diagnosis. Um, So how often do you see that? Is that more of something that you would see at the Mayo Clinic or something I could see in an outpatient physical therapy? um, I've taken care of four patients over the last 35 years. So it's not common at all. It's rare. In fact, it was something that has just, oh, within the last five years, come up with a diagnostic criteria. Hmm. So, um, but it it's an interesting disorder just because of the way it can mimic other uh aspects of pathology, but it seems to be well taken care of with a medication. So, but the other one, this second in line, the one that I end up taking care of the most or did before I retired my practice, uh, vestibular migraine and been taking care of that aspect of dizziness, uh, since I was at the University of Michigan way back. So, and it's the one that has evolved the most with now definitive diagnostic criteria and uh, activities for it. Sometimes physical therapy helps, vestibular rehab helps depending on the way it manifests itself. Um, but you can also do quite a bit by with behavioral changes for the patient, um, getting them to stop certain types of food or beverage triggers. And it's actually also the most common form of, uh, or 
most common cause for dizziness in children by far. Yeah, we actually just did a podcast with a patient who has vestibular migraine who's been such a wealth of knowledge and resource for other people with vestibular migraine, especially through her social media platforms. So yeah, vestibular migraine is definitely a fun one and challenging one because like you said, for us physical therapists, sometimes we can help in that realm. Other times, maybe that patient with vestibular migraine isn't so appropriate at that time in their course of care. And it's really amazing just, you know, very few changes once you can identify them, how that significantly impacts their everyday life. So yeah, I I love that puzzle piece too, or that puzzle and figuring out, you know, where to go next and what questions to ask and what we need to identify as triggers that the patient's not always realizing. So good. Another diagnosis that has evolved over time that we want to get a little bit more into today is 3PD. So if you could start, Dr. Shepard, by first maybe explaining a little bit about what 3PD is and then identifying what signs and symptoms we might see in the clinic. I do also want to mention that we do have a mix of patients and clinicians that listen to our podcast. So just keep that in mind when answering the question. Sure. So first of all, 3PD stands for Persistent Postural Perceptual Dizziness. So, And uh, years ago when uh, the group of us at uh, then, uh, we were all at the University of Pennsylvania together, came up with the, the idea behind this. Um, it was really called chronic subjective dizziness syndrome. And then it has changed now. And the primary reason for the change in name came from the fact that uh, the what's called the International Classification for Vestibular Disorders out of the Barony Society, which is an international society of both clinicians as well as researchers that study vestibular disorders and vestibular uh, physiology. As that group started to put together a diagnostic <clears throat> criteria for this, they found that chronic subjective dizziness didn't translate well into other languages. So they wanted a title that reflected the different aspects of the disorder as well as um, translating well into other languages. And so that's where it got changed to uh, pers uh, persistent postural perceptual dizziness or 3PD. And it is, first of all, what we want patients to understand is it, it, is, it is not a psychiatric disorder. It has a lot of connections with anxiety. It has a lot of connections with behavioral de uh, development and behavioral disorders, but it itself does not fall within the realm of the psychiatric disorder groupings, the, what's called the DSM-5 now. Um, and so it's important, that, and that becomes important because even though it does have things to do with other psychiatric disorders. You don't have to have a psychiatric disorder to have it. And so that right away helps for 
many patients because they don't want what they don't want to hear is that it's all in their head, even though this is all in your head, but you're not crazy. Okay. Um, and so it's a disorder that has uh, some, actually three very specific characteristics to it. Um, the first is that the symptoms, and it can be unsteadiness, off balance, lightheadedness. It could be internal vertigo, where you feel like, yeah, there's movement in my head. Sometimes people can describe that that trajectory of movement. Other times they can't. But what it is not is external vertigo. So the other symptoms in combination can be there. And typically they're there uh, better than 50% of the time. Uh, They have to be doing that for over a period of three months. So that's the first characteristic. Persistent symptoms that go on for three months where if you ask them in general, yeah, uh, do you have symptoms uh, 50% of the time or better than half the time during a day? The answer is typically yes. So that's the first aspect. During During a day when they're having symptoms, Typically, the symptoms build over the day. They could wake up and they could be fine in the morning, and yet then they start to pick up and build throughout the day. The second uh, major characteristic is that the symptoms are um, exacerbated or provoked. If let's say that they wake up and on a given day they don't seem to have any symptoms for the that morning or through through into the afternoon. But if they get exposed to visual motion, visual complexity, um, they can provoke symptoms. If they've already got the symptoms, the symptoms are typically made worse with uh, those visual aspects. So the patients seem to be especially uh, sensitive to a variety of visual stimuli. Typically, when I interview patients, what I want to know is when you go into a, a, a mall or a store, does just going into those, before you ever start shopping or anything else, just, just going into that environment increase your symptoms? What about reading? Does reading increase your symptoms? If you're having to say, uh, let's say if you're driving and you pull up at an intersection, Does the cross traffic bother you? Or if you're a passenger in the car, as opposed to the driver, does looking out the side window bother you? So we're looking at the idea that a variety of different types of visual stimuli will provoke and or exacerbate the symptoms that they're experiencing. the other aspect is motion. Do, do their own routine daily head movements, will that provoke and or exacerbate the symptoms? And typically what's of importance is that the, the movement doesn't 
is not specific to a particular plane of motion. So it's not like what you'd have with BBPV, where lying down or getting up or those specific movements or looking up or looking down will cause it. Any head motion will typically provoke and or exacerbate the symptoms with 3PD. Um, the last one is that this typically starts after a uh, an event that uh, is provoked that provokes uh, dizziness or unsteadiness. It could easily be the type of thing where someone develops BPPV, and from that BPPV episode, they can go on to develop 3PD, or they develop a vestibular neuritis style of disorder. Um, or a vestibular migraine. And so virtually any of the neurootologic disorders, disorders of the inner ear um, and or of the central nervous system can provoke a situation where they will go on to develop uh, the 3PD. And so there are certain um, characteristics uh, personality characteristics that go along with the development of 3PD. And uh, one of them is an individual that is typically, they don't have to have a diagnosed anxiety disorder, but they would characterize themselves or their family would characterize them as a worry ward. And if you think about it, worry wards down here at one end, and a true anxiety disorder is up here at the other end. They don't have to develop that, but that's a type of personality. Um, the other thing that we find is these people are many times introverts. Uh, that goes along with the development of this as well. The, and it doesn't have to be a, um, an event that uh, specifically causes dizziness. So it doesn't have to be an event of the inner ear to go on to develop this. You, a uh, person, one of the, uh, back up for a second, one of the most common symptoms of an anxiety disorder is unsteadiness and off balance. And they can have a mild or not fully diagnosed anxiety disorder and then develop into an anxiety situation where that alone can cause symptoms of unsteadiness and off balance. That, if they have the right types of personality uh, traits, can go on to develop into 3PD. And so the development of 3PD typically occurs pretty rapidly after <clears throat> something else that causes, and the best way to think about it, that event that causes this is an event that causes a disruption with your environment. And the, the most uh, likely thing to do that would be dizziness of some type or unsteadiness, uh, vertigo from something like 3PD or a vestibular migraine. And for what typically happens is they develop the, the uh, event, whatever it is, and then 
what's supposed to happen is you should react in a particular way. And as your symptoms start to reduce or settle down, the reaction that you had, first of all, starts to go away. And probably the best example is uh, someone who develops vestibular neuritis. And vestibular neuritis um, typically starts in with uh, true vertigo, spinning sensation, unsteadiness, off balance, and it's continuous for up to, in many cases, uh, two to four days. And then it changes to head motion provoked only, and then progresses downward from there. The natural reaction to that, and it's one that actually helps you in the very beginning, is that you um, reduce your uh, range of motion. In other words, you deliberately stop yourself from swaying. Okay, you reduce that range of sway. And secondly, it's as if you've told yourself, uh, I can't really trust my internal uh, knowledge of what's going on. So I will be a lot more visually conscious of what's happening around me. When the symptoms don't start to settle down, those two changes effectively come back to haunt you. They develop the issue of, as in most patients with 3PD complain about, oh, I have a rocking or movement sensation in my head and the development of the visual sensitivities. And so those start to build and develop and very quickly develop into symptoms that are present virtually all the time. Um, or at least 50% or greater. And then that stays in that manner until they, uh, the patient gets something to try to break that cycle. And typically, medication is one together with physical therapy or vestibular rehab by physical therapists. Um, where the, phys- the vestibular rehab is of a specific type, it's usually habituation-style exercises, where what we do is use the uh, concept of habituation exercises to try to reduce the sensitivities that that patient has now developed to head movements, visual motion, visual complex environments, and so forth. So it's that together with medication that seems to help and break the cycle and start to reduce uh, the, the symptoms to some, at least to some degree in most patients and in some patients completely. So, so that's a very quick overview of 3PD and its treatment. So, And just Dr. Shepard, regarding treatment, are there any medications in particular that are more um, successful for this? Um, the medications are the ones that are typically out there that have been developed for um, anxiety and or depression. But it's important to understand that you do not have to have a diagnosis of anxiety or depression in order to use that type of medication to help. The, it's the what are called the SSRIs, uh, 
that medication, although the one we typically have gravitated to the most is a medication called Effexor. That's the over-the-counter name. Or Venlafaxine, which is the chemical name for it, which is an SNRI. Um, so it's got a little bit different properties, but it is one that was developed originally for for um, depression. It's useful for anxiety as well. But the person, like I said, doesn't have to have a diagnosis of either of those in order to use that medication effectively for uh, the use of the 3PD. But it takes more than just the medication. It typically takes the medication along with the vestibular rehab in order to treat this. Many patients, um, they get fearful of using SSRIs or fearful of using medications for depression or anxiety. And so in a great many of the cases, we'll start with rehab first. If they start to progress, if they are capable of starting to reduce symptoms with the therapy exercises alone, that's great. If not, then what we do is back them into the use of medication and start the therapy over. Do you give any sort of a break um, while they're starting to get into the medication and before they start therapy again? Uh, no, we just start them right back in at the very beginning. Things we started with that were a little easier than what they're doing now in order for them to develop a <clears throat> tolerance of the medication. And is there any one um, diagnosis in particular that has been uh, more commonly the cause of bringing on 3PD? Or are they kind of all the same across the board? Well, they're not all the same across the board, but probably the one that stands out the most is vestibular neuritis is likely to go into that. <clears throat> and it's misdiagnosed many times as labyrinthitis. Um, that, that's the, the common um, uh, mistake in terms of uh, what you see when patients stumble into an emergency department. They come out with the diagnosis of labyrinthitis where it really is vestibular neuritis. The key difference between those two is that labyrinthitis has a hearing loss with it. Vestibular neuritis does not. So, but if I had to pick one, that's probably the one that's the most likely. Although we've seen patients with BPV, one episode of BPV where they go into it. Uh, Meniere's disease can easily go into it as well. And of importance, uh, you can have 3PD along with another disorder. In fact, along with the disorder that started all this. Yeah. But of importance, most of the people develop into a 3PD, and that really is the major cause of their current symptoms, not what started this. Uh, and unfortunately, patients with something like vestibular neuritis the, the people that they're seeing for treatment or for the disorder recognize the fact that they had vestibular neuritis. That's well diagnosed for them, but they feel like the symptoms continue to be from that. 
missing the fact that what's happened is the patient has changed. It, it no longer is the vestibular neuritis active or causing problems. Now they have morphed into the development of 3PD. And that's what's really causing their symptoms. And if you look at the, at the symptoms and the diagnostic criteria for 3PD, uh, it becomes fairly clear that that's, that something has different has changed since their initial onset of dizziness. So then it's safe to assume that the time frame for recovery is going to yeah. differ from person to person greatly. I mean, you could probably have someone that uh, benefits from therapy and the right medication early on and comes through this on the other side fairly quickly and somebody that can struggle with this for a very long time. Yes, but very quickly is typically three to four months. Yeah, I think that can be one of the most frustrating parts of 3PD for patients is that they've already been experiencing symptoms for three months by the time it's diagnosed as 3PD, right? And then when you talk to them about recovery and, uh, you know, it's not something that's going to just magically change overnight in the same way that maybe their initial BPPV could have, um, it can it can be difficult to have that conversation with patients and really get them to buy into what you're doing and keep them accountable for the program that you're going to put them through. And along those lines, you said a few sentences that I really liked. I'm going to have to listen to this and write them down later. But in the explanation of 3PD to patients, you had mentioned something along the lines of your body no longer trusts. Can you give us a, a really succinct um, explanation that you would say to a patient? You're diagnosing them with 3PD. It's something they've never heard of before. How do you explain 3PD to the Start patient? Start first with the fact that it's not a psychiatric disorder. It is basically a uh, disorder that develops. It's a behavioral change in you. And it's not conscious at all. And then what I do is to go into um, an, an explanation, making sure they, that they understand not to carry this too far. Um, and it is best for the professionals to understand not to carry it too far of the whole idea of Pavlov's dog experiments. Most people, at least I find, most of them that have gone through high school have at least some recognition of the fact that you ring a bell and you condition a dog to salivate because the bell's ringing in terms of, and not have any food present. So the idea of conditioning and that's really what happens with this to some limited degree is they start to experience symptoms that don't seem to want to go away. And so as a result, over time, they become conditioned on those symptoms. They develop a new response to those symptoms. And so as a result, the idea of a conditioning paradigm is one that we use to at least try to give a framework around uh, the explanation. The, um, and that seems to be reasonably well tolerated by the patients. Um, it's the idea that, um, you know, what we need to do now is to change the conditioned behavior. So we'll work on how you respond to various stimuli that are now provoking or making the symptoms worse. 
it doesn't really matter too much how they got to that point, but they become conditioned on it. And uh, as a result, um, that seems to work. There is a, uh, a program at Mayo that was specifically for, it could be used for 3PD and occasionally we did use it, but was used for a wide variety of different things based on a model of pain and how people will develop a pain uh, uh, conditioning situation. And they don't care how they got there. All they try to do is to get them out of that. And for certain types of uh, patients, it was very effective. And so we're using basically the same theory behind it. You're conditioned for this. Now what we need to do is change that conditioning. One thing that is very important, though, is that the patient not go into treatment for 3PD with the assumption that they're going to come out the other end and be back to where they were before all this started. Because they set themselves up for a dramatic failure if they do that. The idea is that they go into the treatment. They do the best they can try to reduce the symptoms as far as they can, but they can end up, certain patients, with a plateau where the symptoms will not go any further below where they are at some point in time. And so they have to realize that they can deal with that and that the whole idea is recognizing the fact that they've done what they can with the medication and or the uh, therapy or the two together, and that that is what's serving them now. Um, But we have patients that um, set themselves up where they feel like, um, well, I'm going to come out this other end being just like I was before any of this started. And then that doesn't happen. And then they develop other problems They develop other uh, uh, symptoms that won't go away. Um, And so they actually compound their uh, 3PD with things that can be psychiatric in nature. But um, so it's important that they not go into it with that mindset. They go into it with the mindset that, yep, I do the best I can, try it, we'll work with it. Uh, as long as we keep improving, even though there's small steps and it takes a long time, keep using the therapy, keep using the medication. Um, so, and many patients also ask, how long will I have to be on this medication? Okay. And so typically we start to see changes uh, by about uh, two to three months. Um, and usually the by three months, um, patients have reduced the intensity of their symptoms by about half. That's what we're looking at. Usually, once we get to the point where you can't seem to make any further changes in their symptoms with an increase in the medication or with an increase in therapy, then by that time, That's where that plateau has been hit. And in some patients, it's okay. They don't really have any symptoms left. So it can 
go all the way from being asymptomatic to having some, um, some amount of symptoms left. Once they get to that point, then unless there is an a actual psychiatric disorder, like they've been diagnosed with anxiety or some other reason for keeping them on that medication, the medication is started to be tapered at that point. They need to understand that while this medication or the medications in the class that are used are not addictive, they cannot be played with. You don't start and stop them suddenly. Because if you stop them suddenly, it can throw you all the way back to where you were at the very beginning. So it's important that patients follow a regime and slowly taper down. And then if they can taper down and nothing comes back, they're taken off. But that's usually about a good year that they'll be on the medication. And I've also experienced along the mindset that you were talking about, I've also experienced really encouraging patients if they've had a bad experience with vestibular therapy in the past, or they had a really bad experience with their initial diagnosis, whatever that may have been, to kind of forget about that, almost picture this as a starting fresh, giving it another chance, because the way that we move through a program for 3PD is going to be very different than how we would if it was BPPV originally or neuritis originally or any other vestibular diagnosis. So I like the mindset aspect of it and, and really from both ends, you know, having a positive outlook, but not too positive of, a, of an outlook. You might you might still have symptoms by the time we're done with this. So that was good. I like that. Yeah. Um, any other questions about 3PD? I was just wondering if you have any, um, I guess, patient examples or like cases that you of 3PD that you have seen or treated that they really had success with it, like full, full circle. Um, yeah, yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> anyone that really stand out, sorry. <laughs> uh, well, the, there are, uh, uh, well, I can think of, uh, a lady um, who actually really fits what we've been talking about. She actually had a diagnosis of vestibular neuritis. Okay. Uh, she, was a 40, she was in her 40s, I don't remember what. But she had a, a clear-cut case of vestibular neuritis, ended up with a hypofunction on one side, the whole nine yards. Okay. And she went on to therapy for that. She had head motion provoked uh, symptoms, which would not be uncommon, and developed as a consequence of the vestibular neuritis, uh, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, which would not be uncommon also. Mm -hmm. And they got, they were able to re, uh, get rid of the BBPV. They were able to reduce her head motion symptoms. But over time, uh, probably about space of uh, five to six weeks, as they were reducing her general head motion symptoms. She got those down, but she was left with a sensation of swaying, movement of some type that was not affected by the therapy that she was going through. And so 
right along with that, shortly after that developed, that's when she began to develop the fact that her sway or the sensation of motion uh, would get worse when she would go into a store, the visual stimuli of a variety of different types. And so she went back to therapy. They tried to work on it again, but they used the same techniques that they'd used for the vestibular neuritis to begin with, as opposed to recognizing that her symptoms now have changed. Um, she eventually um, saw uh, an ENT, went through testing. They identified the hypofunction on one side and the fact that uh, she, uh, as was suspicious when she was in the hospital at the very beginning, they said they had a she had a virus of the inner ear, and so he formally uh, he or she formally diagnosed her as vestibular neuritis. Tried therapy once more. It didn't work. She started doctor shopping. She was going to everybody. She did that for a year. She was tried on a variety of medications for anxiety and uh, depression. And none of them seemed to work or help. They would help reduce the symptoms a little bit, but then they would wear off. Or she was put on uh, some of the benzodiazepines, so Valium, Clonopin, things, uh, medications of that nature, which are addictive. She finally went to a neurotologist, so an ENT that specializes in uh, skull-based surgery and uh, problems with balance and dizziness. He diagnosed her with the same thing, vestibular neuritis, and said that she had failed to undergo central compensation. And actually she had very well underwent central compensation because of what was the original diagnosis was. So she had compensated for her um, disorder from a standpoint, but again, they had failed to recognize the fact that she had changed. So she uh, then finally, uh, uh, the solution was, and it has, it still is offered to people. Well, we can do a vestibular nerve section. We can yeah. cut your nerve, or we can give you a massive dose of genomycin and destroy that balance organ on that side completely. And so wipe things down to zero. That gives you a chance then to go through the compensation process. That theory has been around for a long time. It, there's no science behind it, and it doesn't work. So um, she uh, ended up declining to go through those routes. She came to see us at Mayo, and sure enough, we got the same results as the others had gotten in the past. The difference was, yes, the diagnosis was vestibular neuritis for the beginning of her symptoms. That's what started all this. but. Clearly, she had developed 3PD as opposed to the vestibular neuritis being the cause for her current symptoms. That's the part that everybody missed, the fact that she had morphed over. And she was started on vestibular rehab. She was started on the effector. And she was also started on cognitive behavioral therapy because of the anxiety issues that she had developed along the way. 
Um, within the first 12 weeks, uh, she came back for her first follow-up visit. She was now back in volitionally, not because of therapy, but volitionally going into stores herself, actually doing some shopping, but not a lot. Things expanded beyond that. Her uh, um, medication was increased in terms of the uh, the uh, level, and she was put into more stressful uh, therapy activities, stimuli, and so forth. At the second 12 weeks, uh, she called and canceled her follow-up because she was doing just fine. She was going into stores, she was shopping, she was doing everything that she had been doing before. So she was a, a real star from the standpoint of going through it and going through it fairly rapidly. After that, her diet, her medication was slowly tapered down and she stopped it completely. So you can go from that being a very uh, uh, nice case of someone who goes all the way through the whole nine yards and comes out the other end just fine to others that we have who we can get them partway but they never can seem to get beyond that. And part of it's because they've set their goal from the standpoint of, I should be back to where I was before. Mm -hmm. And they can't get over that. Uh, and they actually develop other symptoms uh, of psychiatric problems with that. One thing that, uh, you know, came up within that patient um, presentation was that she kept going to she kept going to a doctor after doctor doctor shopping and they did all the testing and all the testing came back the same. It, and I we want to get into testing here in a little bit in a little bit, but as far as three PD is concerned, is there any specific testing that would give an indication to three PD, or is it more just listening to the patient and their subjective and noticing the change from the initial event to their current symptoms? The, the major part is recognizing their explanation of signs and symptoms that meet the diagnostic criteria that I set up to begin with. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't have positive results on testing, as in this example I gave, where she did have a hypofunction because she started out with a neurologic disorder uh, and of, a, of the inner ear. The in terms of testing, there has not been any uh, pattern, specific pattern of any of the tests or combinations of tests that seem to reveal that this is 3PD. That said, the uh, posturography has shown a pattern that is much more likely to occur in patients with 3PD or in patients with anxiety disorders than any other pattern. Where if you're familiar with the, uh, the testing or this what's called the sensory organization test of posturography, they have six conditions. And the conditions basically go from the easiest to the most difficult. What happens is that they display an increase in their sway or abnormal performance on the first one to three conditions, which are the easiest, and then do better on the more difficult conditions. Uh, 
And that was originally uh, supposed to represent a, 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 a what, what was called an aphysiologic disorder or someone that was malingering, deliberately trying to do it. Um, but what, we've, what we have found over the years is that it's not aphysiologic. It is actually an anxiety reaction to the testing situation. And 3PD patients are much more likely to show that than others. But it does not have the power to be able to separate patients that have 3PD from those that do not. That's really interesting, especially because, you know, the sensory organization tests are great to have if you have the equipment which not many outpatient physical therapy clinics have. Um, so it's great to go to a place like Mayo or somewhere where they have audiological and, and uh, um, postural testing. But would that be something that we can pick up with just a modified cat sib in the clinic with a foam pad? Yep. Yeah, what you're doing is, is by using the uh, modified cat sib, um, the conditions one and two, basically, or what you're looking at, the patient sways on those. Get the patient to characterize their sway, just verbally. Uh, is it nothing special at all? So characterize it on a scale from zero to ten. Zero, I'm fine. I don't feel like I'm moving at all. Ten, that was the worst I could possibly be. Then put them up on foam and ask them to characterize it again. And what you'll find is, one, they probably will lessen their sway on foam within constraints, especially foam with eyes open. But they will characterize themselves with a, a score that's worse than what they had with the uh, flat firm surface. And so you can get a feel for it that way. That's really interesting and extremely helpful, uh, especially because that's probably a test that almost every vestibular or physical therapist or even balanced physical therapist is doing with their patients. So that's a really, really good uh, piece of knowledge to kind of put in your toolbox when looking at your patients. So thank you for that. Sure. Yeah. Can we actually just review that one more time? So first three conditions, the fine. First, well, not well, fine. They're, they're symptomatic, but you're saying once you put them on foam, they're telling you they're worse. But their sway is better. Oh. No, they are Okay, I misunderstood. Sway is better, but they feel like they're worse, even though they don't look like they're any different than they were on the phone. So, or uh, they're actually, to to some degree, arrest the the sway. The problem with you have to watch out when you put someone up on phone. What you're doing is they're using independent suspension now, so they have. Each foot can react differently than the other foot. And so they have a tendency to sway a little bit more than they may on the flat, firm surface, but they feel like they're horrible. They feel like they're significantly worse than they were on the flat, firm surface. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for that. I definitely did not understand that correctly the first time. So well, I, I, I think it's confusing because you're right. If we were to put a patient through this test and 
you know, their sway was a lot worse on the firm surfaces with eyes open, eyes closed. You go, oh, no, this patient's faking it or, oh, this is, there's something wrong here. This is aphysiological. Uh, you know, this doesn't make sense. You know, initially, I think that would kind of run through all of our heads like mm, there's something fishy going on here. When in reality, this is an actual finding that could be a, a good indicator as to what's going on. And we would have just jumped right over it. So I think that's a, a really good uh, clinical pearl to uh, kind of put aside and pay attention to, um, especially because of how easy it is to test patients for that. So looking at the postural sway and a modified cat sieve can be greatly, greatly beneficial for helping identify patients with 3PD. And listening to your patient, this is something that we harp on a lot on this podcast is just be a listener. You know, a lot of times when patients doctor shop, they have to hop from person to person and they maybe get five minutes um, you know, if they're doing a quick consult and they don't get the time to really fully explain what's going on. So that's one unique thing that physical therapists, um, you know, have is they have this extra time with patients to really sit and listen. And I think that's extremely valuable as well as these bedside and infrared goggle testing that we can do with our patients in the clinic. You know, that could be that step for them to find the right diagnosis. So paying attention to all every little clue that you can get is important, but also listening to the patient is equally as important because sometimes the testing won't yield exactly what you're looking for. So I think that there's a lot of good stuff to learn from that. That's awesome. Yeah. And we'll kind of use that to segue into more vestibular testing. So you have an office or had, tell, tell us a little bit more about your office setup now. Are you still treating patients? No, I formally retired September 1st. Congratulations. Oh, congratulations. congratulations. <laughs> I was, I was when I was out here. I, I came out and set up a practice with a PT group. Um, and so uh, it was uh, just basic bare bones. In other words, what I had were, uh, I had a, a, a set of goggles that I can use uh, that are uh, uh, synapsis is the name of it, but they, uh, work off the iPad. And so I could use those to watch the eyes when they didn't, patient didn't have anything to visualize. But otherwise I used my uh, direct exam techniques and the PT group I was with happened to have a posture, um, uh, an equa test, but, and the patient may or may not have been through that, but I didn't use it. Um, and there's one place here in town where um, they could, uh, I could get a, a, a VNG, um, fairly well done, um, but they didn't have VEMPS at the time or anything else. So, and and certainly didn't have V-HIT. So, um, and so I came from. Mayo, where we had every test known to man and was immediately available upon request. Um, to a typical rural area uh, out here in Montana, where there's not a lot in terms of the testing aspect of things. So basically, the vast majority, and what we had learned earlier anyway, the vast majority of the diagnosis uh, and recognition of what's going on with the patient comes from the history, the neurodologic history that you take directly with the patient. I spend, uh, oh, maybe at the most 10 minutes with the exam 
and that's it. I'll spend another hour to an hour and a half with the history. That's amazing. So, I love that because we, that is something we've also talked about is sometimes almost using your entire eval time to just listen to the patient. If you let them talk long enough, they will tell you what's going on. And sometimes you just have to really dig because what they think isn't important could be hugely important to uh, your evaluation and, and your findings. So did you find it difficult going from having every test known to man to not really, and just kind of using your bedside evaluation, your direct eval, like did you favor one over the other? Or did you find that you could be just as effective um, with fewer tools as you did when you had everything to your disposal? Well, having everything at my disposal and then knowing where I was going to move to, I knew all about it to begin with. <laughs> so it wasn't a surprise. <laughs> and even with having everything that uh, the testing, Really, the testing played out such that um, my direct uh, exam and the history I took from the patient were probably 95% of what made up the diagnosis for that patient and the suggestion for treatment. The testing was used in a variety of ways, but the majority of it was confirmatory for what I thought should occur based on what I thought happened to the patient from the history and my direct exam. So, so yeah, I think, I think you can do very well with that. But there are situations where, boy, the testing of one thing or another could be very useful from a uh, standpoint, uh, a confirmatory standpoint, or from the fact that you have a couple of options you're looking at and trying to play one against the other, then occasionally um, getting the testing can be useful. And specific types of testing or a general schmear. But I think starting with a good um, interview and a good base uh, is a great way to kind of create better patient care. You know, a lot of times people are so quick to just send the patient off to all of this testing and then to come back and sit and listen with everything out in front of them. And sometimes that kind of scares a patient off if they're going through a VNG and they become significantly symptomatic and, and horrified about going through vertigo four times with, you know, either their air or water testing. And, you know, I think starting from a place where you can get an idea of what to expect and then be more particular about what tests you order is not only good patient care, but it saves them money and saves the SIPs the money and keeps it from getting clogged up with all these patients that don't need uh, unnecessary testing. Yes. And while that's true, um, you need to recognize that sometimes it's better just to order the uh, basic vestibular balance function testing where the audiologist um, that's doing the testing, actually, if it's a, someone that's knowledgeable, can make a decision as to what tests are needed, which ones are going to be effective, and so forth, as opposed to trying to pick and choose. You get in trouble if you're picking and choosing. The, and there, the other thing to think about is why do you want the testing? All right. If you have a specific idea in mind as to what you think is going on, um, and Let's say all you want to know is, is this is there evidence for a peripheral disorder or not? 
Well, there are, and say you have somebody in town where you've got everything to your, at your disposal. They can, there are four tests that are used to look for peripheral involvement. The caloric, rotary chair, vestibular vocomyogenic potentials to look at the otoliths, and the V-hit. All right? You've got four of them. If you pick the order correctly, and typically the order would be V-hit, then caloric, then rotary chair, and then the VEMP. And do it in what's called a loose parallel criteria, where the very first test that comes up positive, you stop. That's it. You've got an answer to your question. There's peripheral involvement. Then, then that's a very reasonable way to do things, assuming that there's no evidence of central. But if what you want to know is what's the extent of the damage, how does that play into my treatment? How does that play into what we would do with this patient? Then you end up needing all four of the tests, not done in parallel, but in series. So that uh, done in parallel, sorry, instead of in series. And that what happens, then you've got the four tests that give you different bits and pieces of information about what potentially has happened for the patient together with all of the central aspects. And so it varies uh, based on what you're after, what you're trying to do. But if I'm trying to um, do a look at a patient and characterize exactly what's happened and the extent of the damage, then I probably want everything. If all I want is just uh, a, a quick, easy way to decide whether there's peripheral involvement or not, I would do the, the series study where as soon as one of them's positive, I quit. And then you vary that according to whether you think that this patient could be a possible Meniere's patient. Because if that's the case, then I would start with calorics. I wouldn't start with V-hit, even though the V-hit may be positive, but the caloric is more likely to be positive for other reasons we don't want to get into here. But it, it, so the game uh, is played to try to focus in on what you're doing. And then all of that changes if you're dealing with a 15-month-old. Goodness, I can only imagine. Yes. Okay. Actually, you get better cooperation from them than you get from some adults. But the, <laughs> the point is, though, that you do things, you still have the same battery of tests available. We use the same tests, but you do them in a little different order based on the symptoms that either the parents and if the child is verbal, the child can give you as to what's going on, as to where I would start. I would start in some cases with postural control. I'd start in some other cases with looking at uh, head thrusts. Uh, so it varies. But for a child, to a lesser extent for the adult, but for the child, um, the guiding principle is, okay, the very next thing I do is likely to be the last thing I'll get. Yeah, yeah, it could be it could be just a hello, but <laughs> you know, and that may be it for for that one. So, but so in other words, there's not a routine that you do for everybody. You vary it. 
accordingly. So. It's a big puzzle. You have to find the right pieces that fit in the right order right. for every single patient. Yes. But, and just but I, I, I found I was very comfortable with my uh, direct exam history and what I could do with that. And then would refer the patients out to um, the local area for what, what testing was needed. Or in some of the cases, especially with 3PD, refer them back to Mayo because there's no one out here um, on this side of the Continental Divide or on the other side of the Continental Divide, all the way up to um, Rochester, Minnesota, that really knew a lot about 3PD. So. And I was just going to ask, um, since we're talking a little bit about vestibular testing, if you could briefly go over the four tests that you mentioned earlier, just give a brief synopsis for the listeners. Um, so like V-HIT, VEMP, those four tests. Okay. So the, the video head impulse test is a way to do the head impulse test where you're looking for a corrective saccade. But in this case, you're looking for... Uh, you may still see the corrective saccade, but that's not the important feature. You're looking at the gain of the system. In other words, if I move your head at a certain speed, how how much do your eyes move in the compensatory direction? And so it's the output divided by the input, and that gain is a feature that we're looking for with the V-hit. So it, you may not be able to see a compensatory uh, catch-up uh, saccade uh, on your direct exam, but the gain is lower than what it should be, which says that, uh, yep, there's something going on on that side. So, And it can be done for all six canals. The caloric test, uh, which most people are familiar with or at least heard about, where we use uh, the, the idea of air or water. And the purpose is to try to change the temperature of the fluids within the balanced portion of the inner ear. And by doing that, we can stimulate one side versus the other side and see what kind of response we can get from that. And the response is looking at the eye movement activities from that. And so, but it does in many cases make people feel dizzy. So it, it can be frightening from that standpoint, but it should not make them sick. It, if, if say greater than 5% of your patients are getting sick from that, you're doing something wrong. So, all right. The uh, vestibular evoked myogenic potentials are uh, muscle recordings uh, for both. Uh, there's two otolith organs, so the utricle and the saccule. And for the saccule, we're looking at the sternocleidomastoid muscle of the neck and putting it into contraction and then presenting a loud sound to the ear on the same side or the opposite side, either one. And ending up with that muscle in contraction, that loud sound mediated through the saccule causes a sudden release of contraction and then comes back. 
And so with electrodes on those, on that muscle, we can recognize this by picking up a particular potential and then looking at the size of that potential given the size of the, or the strength of the contraction. We can make some judgment as to whether we think the saccule is working as well as it should be. For the utricle, it's the same idea, but now we're picking up activities from uh, the muscle, not the contraction or release of contraction of the muscle, but the neurological signal that would cause that muscle to contract. And the muscle we're, we're trying to look at is the inferior oblique muscle, which if, if, if you play the loud sound on my right side, I can get the the inferior oblique to contract on my left side. And with electrodes that are just on the surface, I can pick up that electrical uh, neural activity that will cause that muscle to contract. So in this case, it's not the contraction of the muscle, it's the neural activity that causes that muscle to contract that I pick up. And that one's mediated by the utricle. All right. Of importance, while those are two to look at those otolith organs, we really don't uh, understand exactly what symptoms patients should be reporting if they have an otolith problem that's isolated. And they certainly can have them, but we don't know what symptoms really go along with that. Uh, We uh, try to interpret these two uh, tests for the vestibular evoke myogenic potential as, uh, yes, this one looks like it's weak, so you get a, quote, a hypofunction of, say, the utricle on the left side, or a hypofunction of the saccule on the left side or right side. So we can look at things in that manner. But interestingly, just like with the caloric, we're stimulating the inner ear in an artificial way. That's not the way the system is designed to respond. We're using something else. And same thing here with the, the VIMPs or vestibular evoked myogenic potential. We're using sound uh, in order to, or a pressure wave in order to uh, stimulate the system. But the system really is designed to respond to um, accelerations and decelerations, not the other. So, but it does give us at least some partial measure of that. And then, um, rotary chair. Rotary chair, yeah. All right. And it is a test where we're now using the natural way the system is designed to respond. And so typically it's all, it's all being done for the horizontal canals. And we can look at how well the eye will respond once we move the head. And so there's particular designs about how we do it and different protocols that are used. But the whole idea is, okay, let's move the head and see how the eye responds. And we have enough knowledge about the characteristics of the way the system works. And over time, normative data have been developed so that I can look at this as a way to determine whether the person's response to me causing their head to move 
uh, is within a normal range or not. It typically is the, uh, there, the major rotary chair is a total body rotary chair. So the chair I'm sitting in, what we would do is make it move like this, all right? So we spin the entire body and then take the response from the eyes and we have the head fastened to the chair. So if we know how the chair is moving, we know how the head's moving. And then we're looking at the outcome, which is how do the eyes respond? And it can be used to identify abnormalities in the peripheral vestibular system. The four tests are um, what we call positively correlated. In other words, all four of them, if you have a group of patients that have a peripheral disorder, there's a good chance that all four of them could identify that same patient. But they're not 100% correlated, which means that each one of the tests has the opportunity to identify patients that would be positive on the other tests, but then positive, but not positive on this test or the reverse not having positive findings on, say, three of the tests, but there's one test that does show up positive. So they, and they, they vary based on the fact that this is a frequency-dependent system. And so, and each of those four tests are at different frequencies. They're stimulating the system differently and looking to see what the response is. The rotary chair has uh, been around probably for the longest of any of them, uh, Purkinje, uh, you know, you get some cells in your brain named after him, okay? He used rotary chair to evaluate the cerebellum. That's how he did his studies. But that was back in the 1800s, okay? So we've now added motors to it and computers and all sorts of good whistles and bells and things. But the point is that we can characterize the way the system is functioning with the chair. Does it help you with your treatment? No. It doesn't modify your treatment except in the case of someone who is a bilateral because it's the only means for determining the extent of a bilateral hypofunction. And if that's severe, you may use the same therapy may use the same techniques, but you're probably not going to push the patient as hard as you would if they had residual function. The other thing that it does is you could have someone come in and have a completely normal VNG, completely normal VEMP, completely normal V-HIT, and yet be abnormal on rotary chair. So it has the opportunity to provide what, what the patient's really looking for, yes, we found something wrong. Hmm. All right. So it's using counseling that way, but it doesn't necessarily change the way you would do your therapy. So except for the bilaterals. So Sometimes those patients are looking for that answer, right? You know, how many patients is that? I wish I had something, you know, terrible that at least had a cure so we could get started in fixing this. But some patients get so frustrated that they can't put a name to it uh, that they just almost want to give up. So, I mean, there is some importance on being able to identify that and giving the patient some closure that, this, yes, there is something wrong. We found it. Yeah. And and that's, that you run into all the time. And yet at the same time, if a patient uh, 
comes up with everything normal, then our response is, that's great. All right. We can still treat you based on your symptoms. You're telling us that this X, Y, and Z cause your problems. We can take care of X, Y, and Z, even though we don't have any physical abnormalities that's showing up. And that likely because it's minor enough or we don't have a test sensitive enough to do that. Or in the case of 3PD, that's another pattern that we're looking for, is that nothing is abnormal. Mm -hmm. And along those lines, then, I think you make a, a good point there in that if you are in that rural area that doesn't have the fancy tests, it's okay. We can still treat you based on your symptoms and our direct exam. So that's good news. Yes, it is. So. Well, I think we've kept you probably 45 minutes longer than we said we were going to. We may have to send you a thank you card and a box of chocolates and a bottle of wine to thank time. But um, we really appreciate you joining our show today. You're such a wealth of knowledge. And I know our listeners, both clinicians and patients are like, are really going to enjoy this one. Hope so. Thank you very much. I enjoyed talking with the three of you. And... Hopefully it will be useful and helpful to somebody. Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. Okay. And we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank Are you, you so much. Good night. Good night. Good night. Thank you. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos blogs, continuing education classes, and resources including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPMBV treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.